This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Danielle Evans, author of The Office of Historical Corrections. You can sort of see a generational anxiety in in Black Americans where you're sort of always prepared to expect the worst. You're always prepared for to encounter some form of violence or discrimination. You're always prepared for, for someone to come for some right that you haven't had for very long. We'll be back with Danielle Evans in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven plus years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft, although in the past year, it's been almost 50. Producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and a lot of planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Harare and back again. We are going through monumental changes as a society right now, and as I discussed in an episode earlier this year with the writer Claire Massoud, the time for art is now. I emphatically believe this, and if you value this program, please consider becoming a contributing member by donating at www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. You can give any amount, but for just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the show, including ad-free, pitch-free episodes and cuts that didn't make it into the final episode writing tips, and more. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me and the production of this show. Each Patreon member keeps this show going, and it's here because of others like you who transformed from listener to supporter. It's an amazing and simple way to continue discussions like the one you're about to hear. Whether this is your first time listening or you have caught the more than 300 produced episodes, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. It's important to me to produce interviews with diverse writers and sometimes on difficult topics that I truly believe contribute something meaningful and diverse to our societal conversations about what it means to be alive today. This effort takes money, time, equipment, and organization more than I'd like to admit to having, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount and you know it will go to the continuation of the conversations that you've heard before and you're about to hear again on literary craft, content, and practice as well as the culture we inhabit. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Danielle Evans. She is the author of two short story collections, The Office of Historical Corrections, and Before You Suffocate Your Own Fool Self which won the Penn American Robert W. Bingham Prize, the Hurston Wright Legacy Award, and the Patterson Fiction Prize. 
Evan's stories have appeared in many magazines and anthologies, including the Best American Short Stories. She teaches writing seminars at Johns Hopkins University. Her new collection, which contains six short stories and the novella, The Office of Historical Corrections, explores overarching themes of personal and collective history, grief, anxiety, racism, the intersection of intimacy between black and white characters, and females making their way in the world, some existing on precipices. We began the discussion with me asking Danielle Evans this question. With the Office of Historical Corrections, it seemed to me that there was a lot of a lot of grief, a lot of healing embedded in these stories. And I sort of ended up walking away if I had to say one thing was like the question of like, how do we save ourselves? And I'm just wondering of your comment on that idea and also what was really dominating your thoughts as you wrote these stories. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that part of the joy and terror of being a writer is that you are 75% a kind of artist in deliberate control of your form and 25% a person at the mercy of like yourself as the world's worst therapist or your own subconscious or some version of you that if you knew what it was doing, you probably wouldn't allow it. So I don't think I intentionally set out to write a book about grief, although I, I do think that I did write a book about grief. Um, and partly it's in some of the stories, a sort of actual grief, partly it's in the structure of the stories themselves. You know, I think about grief and time and grief and humor and grief and agency and all of those things, I think, um, are kind of hardwired into these stories, even when they're not explicitly about grief. Um, how do we live a day-by-day life in the wake of something that feels like it's all the gravity in the story, right? I think some of the stories are structured that way, where there's sort of the actual emotional core of the story is like a flat line, and the action of the story is about evasion or distraction or kind of getting back to a place where you can feel like a person with agency again, or the story is turning on the places where that submerged part of the story and the present action come together, which I think is one of the beautiful things about the story form is the way that you can sort of be present in multiple time frames at once because of those sort of intense moments of compression. And I feel like those moments where it's sort of, we're thinking about the past and we're in the present and we're thinking about the future also feel like an enormous feeling feels. They feel like grief feels because it's sort of on the one hand, this enormous present feeling, and it's also a feeling that asks you to reconstruct the narrative of the past and and find the sort of most useful version of it or the most bothersome version of it, and also a feeling that asks you to sort of imagine the way the future has changed in the wake of whatever you don't have anymore. And I also think that there's a way that grief is about the absence of a shared world, which can bleed into the, the way the stories use humor, the way the stories use voice, the way the stories even engage the question of audience. So it is certainly all over the book. And some of that were was some of those were things I could consciously edit for once I understood that, but very little of that did I understand before I'd written most of the book. When you're alluding so much to structure, does that come later? Like do you kind of spill it out and then form the structure or are you kind of a structural writer from the first word? I mean, I do try to write a first draft really quickly, and I think I'm trying to pin the structure down before I pin the language down. It doesn't always work as quickly as I'd like, but ideally I get to the end of the first draft and feel like the frame is there, 
And then I'm editing for kind of voice and sound and image and language. Um, sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes I, I fall in love with the voice and have to sort of figure out where the structure is. Sometimes I get what I think is the frame and then I get only to the end of the story and see what the story is actually about and have to restructure it. So sometimes my first editing pass is structural, um, but I do try to understand the shape of the story first and as quickly as I can, um, which is sometimes very quickly and sometimes very slowly. I wrote down in my notes that a lot of your stories might be looking at similar questions, but they're explored in, in different ways and different issues, but with a different lens on them. And I my overall note was that each story sort of looks at the fat and the muscle, but underneath is a skeleton of this country, of our history. So the fat and the muscle might be missing um, a parent, missing a lover. It could be something that happened in the community or something in the past, but underneath all of it is a very solid look at the history of our country. Does that seem accurate to you? Oh, well, I hope so, because that's really beautiful. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that part of the project of this book for me is very much about inheritance, whether national inheritance, family inheritance, And I think I'm always, as a writer, interested in the relationship between the personal and the structural um, and the really intimate relationship between the personal and the structural. I mean, I think sometimes that sounds like an abstract or political question, but for me, it's a question about how we behave and how we make decisions. You know, I think if you are any person who's had to be aware of power dynamics, which is most of us to some degree, and I think exacerbated by in how many ways you might be disempowered or marginalized, you know when you have to perform, right? You know who has the capacity to demand a version of yourself other than the sort of most vulnerable or honest one. You know um, what the stakes are of failing to perform in the appropriate way. And so I'm, when I'm writing characters, especially when I'm writing women and Black women, I'm, I'm aware of people who are aware of power as a thing that has to be negotiated with. Um, I'm aware of people for whom that negotiation informs their most intimate decisions and their most intimate knowledge of self and self. And so I'm thinking always about the relationship between that sort of awareness of the world and the way the world works and the general space of interiority, right? The general space of the difference between what we can say or how we feel and what we do. Did you come out after writing these stories with any sort of different view of some of these, these issues? I mean, I think that one of the joys of the story collection forum in general is that you can ask the same question in different ways. You can write people who look at the same question and come up with different answers. I mean, I think, like, no, do I know how to how to hold ourselves accountable for American history after writing this book? I do not. Um, do I know how to grieve any better? I do not. But um, But there's something interesting about thinking about the different shapes of the question and and kind of letting that lack of having a concrete answer or an authoritative set of advice be the space of fiction, which I think is always a kind of conversational space, is always a kind of questioning space, which is not to say that there there aren't things these stories have can take for granted about our shared reality or just the sort of what the world is. But I think there's a lot of room for how we might respond to you or engage it. I was left with with so many questions and because of the title in the last story, and we'll get into some of the stories in a minute, but the Office of Historical Corrections, I, I, I kind of wanted to say like, well, what would you like to see 
uh, how would you like to see us correct history? Is that even possible? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of one of the recurring themes of the collection is a question about about that possibility. Is a question of you know we think about fiction a lot in terms of especially the short story form is sort of looking at something that creates a before and after precisely because it can't be undone. So what does it mean to kind of try to correct a moment like that, right? What does it mean to acknowledge and repair a rupture? And I think it involves both an honest acknowledgement of what's happened and a kind of attempt to, to correct the structural wrong, but it's also in some fundamental way an impossible project because you can't take a moment that is a definitive before and after and go back to before. Like that's that's how moments like that work. And you you can't sort of erase from the foundation of a country or a family the thing that was troubled from the beginning or the thing that has sort of shaped everyone's life since then. And I think some of these stories are thinking about the narrative of apology, about the narrative of reconciliation. And again, thinking about them from a structural perspective, because the thing about these stories is they're always the stories of the person who has something to apologize for, right? That, and it can be a real meaningful story of growth from that perspective, right? You can have a real story of somebody who has learned and grown and become better and will be better for their future interactions with people who haven't met them yet. And that can do exactly zero things for the story of a person who met them before they were a better person, you know? Um, and so I think partly some of the question is just like, whose story is this? If this is the story of a nation, maybe there's a version of it that ends, quote unquote, happily, where there's a possibility for growth and change. If this is a story of the people who had to kind of be sacrificed to teach somebody else a lesson, then if it's a story in which they're the protagonist, there is no happy ending. Let's talk about Richard of York gave battle in vain. It had some of my my favorite moments in there, but I also just want to talk about what happened and um, the plot and, and what you were thinking about when you wrote this. First, I wanted to just ask you about the title. The title is it's it's partly just a reference to, you know, the, the monic device for remembering the colors of the rainbow because the story opens with a rainbow bridal party. I did sort of like the appeal to history and vanity that the title also contains. It is a sort of very dramatic way of thinking about a very childlike concept, which which sort of felt appropriate for the the character who really has all of these sort of inventive ways of evading what is just a kind of profound and basic human grief and, and kind of reckoning with the difference between who she thought she would be and who she's become as an adult. So it seemed to speak to both that childlike space and that more haunted space. Um, and so I liked it as a title. I liked it as a reference to kind of a thing that we remember now more for its association to the rainbow than for its sort of tragic backstory, although the tragic backstory is contained within it. In this story, you have um, two main characters, Rena and Dory. And Rena is a photographer, and she was flying back from Africa and ended up getting stuck. The plane got pulled over because there was some kind of biological weapon or something on board. And so they had to stop in Ghana. And she ended up there for a week with this man named JT, who's, and Rena is black, and JT is this blonde, um, good looking guy who they become friends friends. They have intimate time together there. They they don't uh, sleep together, but they, they share a lot. At that time, he is set to marry a woman, Dory, who he's been with 
forever. And so Rena comes to the wedding and it's all Dory's friends who are dressed in different colors of the rainbow. And she clearly feels out of space um, with all those people, but she's there to support her friend JT. And there's this looming thing underneath where maybe Dory, she thinks Dory thinks that maybe she and JT had an affair. And then towards the end, JT just can't handle it and takes off. And then Rena and Dory end up together on a little adventure. And at the same time in Rena's life is this really tragic story about her sister who was shot by the man that she was with. And while she didn't die, she is basically doesn't really have her mental facilities anymore. Yes, you got it all in there. I'm impressed. <laughs> um, and so that's that's where that line came from. Don't take for granted that anything is safe. I just wanted to ask you about like what was bubbling up in you that you started this story. This was one of the stories, as much as I said, I, I try to write a first draft really quickly. This is one of the stories where it took me a long time to get to the end of the first draft. Although by the time I did get to the end, it was closer to finished than I would usually be. And that's partly because I wrote the first half of the story really quickly and I knew that it was half a story, but I kind of didn't know which half. And I wasn't sure whether it needed to be slowed down so that I had the structure of the story was there and it was just a matter of pacing or whether there was a turn in the story that needed to come next. Um, and so the first half of the story, I wrote up to the point where JT leaves the wedding. And um, all of the things that are in the story were, were in it. They're sort of backstory of having met in these strange circumstances, um, Rena's sister and the fact that Rena hasn't kind of reckoned without her been home um, to see her um, was all there. And I, I felt like it, um, I got to that moment and I thought, oh, this maybe isn't the story that I thought it was because I'd set out thinking, oh, this woman is uncomfortable at this wedding. You know, the, the sort of voice and image had come really clearly to me. And I assumed as I was writing the first draft of the first half of the story that it was because she had some like unresolved history with the groom and that she would be that, that she just felt out of place or uncomfortable with the wedding because of that personal relationship and then when I finally got them on the page together I was like oh these people aren't actually that interested in each other in that way um there's the, the tension here is not really about this man so I had to back up and kind of reconceive my own understanding of the story it took me a while to figure out where the turn was. It took me a while to let Dory be a fully interesting character because for a while in the first draft, I'd assumed that she was just going to be a secondary character. And so she was just somebody's kind of kind, uncomplicated fiance. And when the story kind of opened up for me, I realized that it was about a kind of a larger discomfort, a larger sense of, you know, at a certain point, having made choices that that foreclose other choices and having to reckon with that and having to reckon with kind of like what kind of person or kind of woman in particular you're going to be in the world. And so the more interesting dynamic was between Dory and Rena, who could both see choices they'd made, which had foreclosed other choices or possibilities, and who could sort of develop both a wariness of each other and a kind of grudging respect as the choices the other woman had made became more clear to them. And so it, it took a more interesting turn and I could sort of get at more of what was underneath the story um, in terms of Rena's sort of questions about how to be a person in the world, um, which were more interesting ultimately than her questions about what feelings she'd had or didn't have for this particular man. Is it okay to say that they ended up at a water park? 
yeah. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know they were going to end up in a water park until the end of the first draft. But it, then I was very pleased with myself for having started the story with Noah's Ark because I, I thought that I could then get away with a water park. And I love that they ended up at the water park because there's a lot of things that, that led them there. But it just sort of signified to me this moment of them coming together in some way, them both throwing up the hands at what they wanted. But in, in, in a way, throwing up the hands is just like finding comfort and relief in the, in the present moment. Yeah. Yeah. No, the water park felt like the right ending when I, when it arrived, partly because it circled back to, to a kind of an interesting echo of the opening, but partly because it, it allowed an interesting kind of ambiguous space to, to stop the story. Like it wasn't going to resolve either of their larger existential questions, but it allowed a kind of moment of release in the story. And I also feel like, you know, at the point that you sort of slid down a water slide, you're not getting married that day. So it was, it was an okay way to sort of resolve the immediate question of the story while leaving open the larger questions of the story about what would happen the day after or the day after that. I think that was like in the whole collection, the, the moment that stands out that I'll remember for a really long time. And it, it sort of reminds me, you know, of, of writers that, you know, sometimes these things come un, unexpected that might be not the salvation to your story. I don't know if you felt that, but just like that perfect puzzle piece. It's rarely the ending that troubles me with a story. It's, it's the moment where the story reveals what it's actually about, which is usually close to the ending or on the way to the ending in the last third of the story. But I think for me, the moment of sort of realizing I knew what the story was and I could fix it and finish it um, was when they're in that car ride and, and Dory is like joking about trying to set her up with this person she sort of hooked up with at the wedding. And it, it opens up Farina into this sort of larger space of, acknowledgement of kind of where she is in life and this kind of more honest um, assessment of herself. And I was like, oh, that's what's underneath this story. That's why she's uncomfortable. This is the emotional question of the story. This is not going to get resolved in the next five pages. But now that I know what it is and I can sort of get that on the page, I can figure out how to resolve the, the question that I did ask, which is about kind of what's going to happen to these two women in the space of this one wedding day. Most of your protagonists cannot seem to make a commitment to their men, they either seem to be in relationships and go back to old flames or just have casual sex with other people. But there's a definite lack of commitment there. Yeah. I mean, I think that that for me is, is partly because as I said, these are people who are really aware of and interested in power dynamics and I'm not sure it's particularly empowering to commit to men. You know, I, well, I, I would say that I think that maybe two things, like one one sort of softer than the other. I think that I would say that a lot of the characters in this book are defined by anxiety, and that's built into the structure of the stories. It's built into um, the characterization. It doesn't mean that everybody responds to anxiety the same way, but the sort of question of anticipating like what might go wrong or what might happen or how to evade it or how to stay safe is a recurring question, and people come up with different answers and have different approaches to it. But I think that that is a question that is informed by a lot of personal and structural factors, right? It's a question that I think is, is somewhat generational. I think that we've, we've seen a lot of writing about millennial anxiety and the way that we were sort of prepared for a world and promised a world that isn't the world that we were raised for. Um, I think we, we you can sort of see 
a generational anxiety in in Black Americans where you're sort of always prepared to expect the worst. You're always prepared for to encounter some form of violence or discrimination. You're always prepared for for someone to come for some right that you haven't had for very long, right? I mean, I think it was it was raised to watch out for like when the civil rights movement would be reversed. So um, I'm glad that I was prepared for that. But um, here we are in 2020 kind of watching voting rights be stripped away. I, I, it's also like a gendered anxiety. I mean, I think as a woman, like so many of our earliest lessons from deliberate and not from, from adults are about like how to be safe in the world, right? How to constantly be on alert for danger, how to not put yourself in, in any situation in which you might be harmed and then blame for whatever harm comes to you. So um, I think anxiety gets a bad rap. <laughs> anxiety is also like a reasonable condition to being raised that way. Anxiety is a survival tactic of sorts, right? Anxiety is maybe not a great existential space at times, but for some of these characters, the alternative to being anxious and on guard all the time would be being dead. So, you know, yay, anxiety. <laughs> um, and, I, and I say all that to say that I think that that as a survival tactic, even a useful one at times is also like a difficult space in which to enter any kind of intimate relationship, right? Because intimacy is about vulnerability. It's about letting your guard down. It's about trusting somebody and not anticipating the worst. And so if you can't do that, it's it's hard to to have that. And I also think the sort of second half of that question is like, yes, yeah, sometimes it means you can't do that when you should. And you're, you know, the, the, the sort of survival tactics that you have developed for one set of circumstances are failing you in another but I mean, sometimes I think even in the space of relationships, that's a reasonable hesitation, right? Does the world value women, especially Black women, as much as it asks them to value their partners? I, I, I don't think there's a lot of evidence for that. Does, does the world sort of reward fidelity or sacrifice in women with equal fidelity and sacrifice in, in heterosexual partnerships? Um, you know, I mean, open question, certainly sometimes. But, um, but I think a lot of the time, um, the question is like, what... And this is about people, but it's also about institutions, right? Like what is worth the amount of energy or commitment it's demanding of me? Like what is interested in me being the protagonist of my own life? What is interested in me being the center of the story as opposed to me being a valuable way for somebody else to learn a lesson and become a more interesting heroic version of themselves? And, you know, sometimes I think that thing is maybe not men. It's sort of interesting too, because I mean, we have so many versions of the romance plot and all of them are really fascinating and interesting but I'm, I'm interested I'm interested in friendship as a space because it's a thing that has to be constantly chosen whereas I think that romantic relationships when they're defined by commitment they're kind of hard to undo right like you, you you've made a profound choice and and then you're sort of it takes an event to disrupt that choice right it takes an event to break up a, a serious relationship or a marriage it doesn't take an event necessarily to break up a casual fling or to break up a friendship. And so I'm interested in the choices that we have to make over and over again and their possibilities for rhyming action and their possibilities for creating an interesting either contrast or continuity between who we were the first time we chose something and who we were the last time. So some of your your things that you were talking about with reference to anxiety and living with this anxiety and especially the anxiety of race and, and what you you were taught might happen and, and the country we live in today. And I believe that through most of these stories, while you're looking at these structural structural elements to how our country operates and what our legacies are, you're also really looking at it through the lens of intimate intersections of black and white 
characters, characters who have really intimate relationships with each other. And it's such an interesting way to look at it because it it gets to how deep I think some of that structural racism is when you think, well, some people might want to say like, I've, I've dated someone of the other color or I've, you know, have this best friend who's the other color, which might in some way mean that I don't have racist thoughts consciously or unconsciously, but that's not true. Yeah. I mean, I think that intimacy doesn't in any case preclude the possibility of performance, right? Sometimes it demands performance. Um, and so I think that that intersection is, is one of the spaces where you can look at the sort of most human version of that structural question, right? Like, what can I honestly say or not say, even to someone who I believe loves me, right? What can I honestly say or not say and be heard um, and, and feel safe saying um, to somebody in what should be an intimate circumstance? And also, I mean, I think the intimacy of racism sometimes is like, someone you love or care about saying or doing something unexpectedly racist, but sometimes it's about just the the spaces where that negotiation enters where you don't anticipate them. So like the first story in the collection takes place in the hospital and, you know, the, the main arc of the story is about grief, but there are these moments um, when the narrator has to sort of account for medical racism or, you know, the discrimination her boyfriend faces in a pharmacy trying to pick up the medication and, and these kinds of everyday things that are just things you sort of learn to prepare for in the world, but become a kind of extra layer of what's already a, an intimately difficult experience. Um, and so I do think that, you know, it's not like, you know, you're going about your business being a person and racism exists in some sort of far off place. Like the, the, the point of racism and the reason it's terrifying and damaging and creates a kind of ongoing relationship of anxiety to the world is because like it's always possible and and sometimes shows up when you are least ready for it or expect it because you're in the middle of something else like trying to have a regular human relationship or a regular human kind of medical emergency yeah and I think with that first story happily ever after I mean on the most you know basic surface it's about a character named Lissa who works at this sort of rebuilt version of the Titanic where they have special events and it uh there's a video being shot for like a like a level two pop star and she was asked to be in it and she ends up having a a, a one night stand with the director but you get into this short 18 page story you get global warming, you get police violence on black men, you get pop culture, the fear of the future, the health scare, the the racism, the medical racism, the death of a parent, her own questions about her future. And so it seems as a reader, clearly that, that these are things that are so interwoven in your mind that it was I mean, I dare not say this, but I want to say like it seemed like it was so effortless to get this all on the page where it isn't didactic and it isn't like you're pointing out, look, here's my little spot on global warming and here's my little spot on violence against black individuals. It it just flows so congruently. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it felt natural to that character, both both as somebody like in the aftermath of this traumatic experience, having a heightened anxiety. So there was room to get all of the things that were anxious that she was anxious about onto the page. 
Um, but also as a character whose who's primary response to that anxiety in the present action is evasion. And so evasive characters can be fun because you can sort of wander through time with them as they try to like not look at the thing that's actually there. Of course, at some point, you do have to write the thing that's actually at the center of the story. And that's always the hard part. So the Office of Historical Corrections is the novella that is the title story for the collection and also the last piece in in the work. It is not futuristic, but it has a little bit of a speculative bent to it just in the conceit, but the rest is very real and present. And and the conceit is basically that the government has has a an arm sort of like the NIH for a different you write, wrote an NIH for a different sort of public health crisis. And what it is, is the Office of Historical Corrections. And these people go around and correct history, um, especially the history of of African-Americans. And they are based out of D.C. And your main character, Cassie, works for them. And she works there, um, at least overlapped there with a childhood friend slash nemesis it seemed to go back and forth between which they were and her name is Genevieve and Genevieve seemed to have this perfect life until she got let go of the office of historical correction because she was going she wanted more history and and backdrop to the things that they were correcting to really not just say hey this you know someone was hurt here but here here's the people who hurt this this black individual in this instance and Cassie is sent to Wisconsin to clear up a mystery about a store that burned down um, including the death of the black owner and there were some questions as to whether he actually did die or not so you get to go into sort of this history of what really happened you're looking at the culture of the Midwest and how what that feels like to a black woman and you're looking at some of her past relationships and you're looking at our overall history and so many things that are, are wrong with that. So can you talk a little bit about the origination of this and then where you wanted it to go? Yeah. Um, I think, um, it's hard to answer this question directly because it has maybe three different origin stories. So maybe I'll just give you all three and you can pick one. Um, one is that I, have been working for a long time on a novel about a historian, um, a novel about a historian who was supposed to be writing a progressive history textbook. And everybody was basically mad at her because she was taking too long and it wasn't progressive enough. And it was kind of an impossible project to conceive. Um, and, and that was in the space of a novel where lots of other things were happening. Um, you know, she, she was doing this as part of a kind of experimental school that also was involved in this kind of um, activist project. I wrote that novel three times and I kind of, ultimately felt like I couldn't solve its fundamental problems, one of which was a time problem. Like it was set in 2010 in a fictionalized 2010 that ultimately as time passed, just felt less interesting than what had actually happened in the space of that decade. And so I felt like I couldn't fundamentally stay committed to the core of the project. Um, but the second question, the second problem that, that, that kept coming up that I really didn't see for a long time, but, but that other people kept seeing for me um, was that people were like, this is, is, isn't an interesting enough conflict. Are you sure she's the main character? And I'm like, of course she's the main character. She's the most interesting. Um, other people were like, she's just like failing to write a book for the whole book. That's not interesting. And I didn't, I didn't understand why other people didn't understand this is a profound and interesting crisis. So um, I had kind of stepped away from the third rewrite of that book and just 
then I couldn't I couldn't do it again. Like I thought that I had sort of solved the fundamental problems in the in the final rewrite. And I thought I just can't spend any more years of my life on this book. Like at this point, I'm kind of throwing good energy after bad. I, I can't um I can't do it anymore. So I thought that I was abandoning that project entirely. Um, although I don't think that I ultimately did. Um, but so we'll table that. The first the first part of it was a sort of a long time question of like how to write about a historian who was convinced that this kind of honest reckoning with American history could somehow save us in the present. Um, the second origin story was I had finished most of the collection. You know, I didn't understand what the book was about until I wrote the story, Why Won't Women Just Say What They Want, which is the second to last thing I wrote for the collection. And it felt like it had a very clear framing of what I realized then was the kind of more subtle question of all of the other stories, which was this question about apology and correction and correction of the record and who stories and history belong to. And so I sort of understood what my story collection was about all of a sudden. And I thought, okay, I need one or two more things to finish this. I don't know what they are yet, but I know what I'm working on and I know that it's a book. And then the third origin story was I said, I'm going to write this new novel now that I've like thrown out this old novel. I I genuinely thought this was a new project that was unrelated to either of the other projects because again, like part of being a writer is just being very stupid about your own intentions sometimes. Um, and I thought I've always wanted to write a detective story. So I'm going to kind of write as though it's literal this story that I've been a kind of running joke for a while where I would hear somebody say something just completely egregiously wrong. And I would say to somebody, you know, I would like pay for there to be an agency that would just like correct misinformation. (laughs) I would just say like, you can look this up. Here are the sources. Like, here's what actually happened. Um, And of course I recognize that like such an agency would not and, and, and probably should not exist, right? It would be um, terribly invasive and also um, tied up in this sort of other question, which I think is really interesting to me as a person who grew up in DC, um, as a person who um, grew up around and, and with a lot of civil servants and is interested specifically in the question of, of government and Black American life. Um, because I think, you know, the federal government as one of the earlier employers to integrate as one of the um earlier spaces to stop actively discriminating against Black people um, has this fraught relationship to Black communities as both a source of power, a source of agency, a source of kind of bringing people into the American project and bringing them in in some authoritative or very visible way, and also kind of fundamentally failing communities of color, especially Black communities. And so I wanted to think about that tension, right? I wanted to think about that tension as the experience of civil servants, right? I wanted to think about people going into civil service with good intentions and with kind of a faith in the public good, um, more so than a faith necessarily in individual citizens because of of how much of the relationship between the federal government and the states has been the federal government telling states to be less racist, right? Um, But also how, how those how that pretense of power can amplify failure, how that pretense of power can create the illusion of power without actually giving people power, how that pretense of power can sometimes be real power, but that power means the power to be harmful or abusive in in doing the work of of an agency that isn't ultimately um, for the people. So so it gave me a chance to think into a lot of questions that I wanted to think about and also to kind of finally write this detective story. And I realized pretty quickly as I started the first draft of what I thought was this new novel that I had created way more detours, detours than I needed. I wasn't interested in it being as long as I had made it. And I had 
Um, and it was tied to, to both projects, right? It was tied to that novel that I've been working on. And so the once I realized that I was like, oh, I can just write this as though it's the same character, but I finally given her something to do besides sit around and be mad that she can't write a book. Um, and I could also see that it fit in conversation with all of the stories I'd written and was like the most literal version of the question the stories were asking. And that gave me kind of freedom to think, well, it can be as long or short as it needs to be, right? I don't need to try to like force this into some kind of novel shape because it belongs in this collection. It belongs in conversation with this other work. And I don't need to try to condense it to make it fit in a journal because it has a home in this book that's already almost done and will be the, the kind of anchor of it. So once I understood that, I could sort of in the second draft just lean into that and pull in some material from that novel draft and think about the frame in terms of just like how long I wanted it to be and think about it in conversation with the other stories as a way of kind of amplifying the question they were already asking. And so when Cassie goes to Wisconsin, which she has a history with, she had um, she had lived there. She has an ex-boyfriend whose name is Nick, who she talks about as he's white and he's shielding her in some way from the racism of of Wisconsin and the Midwest. And there's definitely other moments in, in the book where you feel that the Midwest is not a hospitable place. And so I'm, I'm curious about your own history there. And, and obviously this very focused idea to center this, the story there. Yeah. And I think that, you know, partly it's just, you set stories where you've spent time and feel like you can um, get it on the page in some way that feels accurate. And so the story is that, partly in DC, which is where I was living before I moved to Wisconsin and I'm living close to now, I'm in Baltimore now, and partly in Wisconsin, which is where I was living for most of the time that I was working on this collection. So um, I wish that I had a more philosophical answer, but partly it's just like um, you you sort of draw on the settings that you feel like you can close your eyes and see. Um, but I, I do think that it lent itself to that more existential and thematic question. Partly I'm interested in thinking about the way that race and racism have shaped this whole country, including the places where we think of, often incorrectly, but think of Black people as being absent, right? Like if in fact you are in a territory where there are no people of color, that absence is somehow a result of some sort of enforced keeping out. Um, And if you live in a place um, where there are, you know, cities that are very diverse and they're somehow not treated as part of the state, then like, that's also a reflection of something structural, right? If, 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 if you sort of say, oh, but the real population of this place is this kind of person, when in fact lots of other kind of people live there, um, that's also a kind of erasure that, that has roots. And so I was interested, not just in this story, but also, you know, there's an earlier story where there's a, a woman who's using kind of Confederate um, symbolism, but she's from Northern Virginia and she goes to college in Vermont, right? And I was interested in the space of how far those symbols travel, right? And, and there being not one part of the country that has a question or a, a history with race and racism, but the whole country. Um, so partly I was interested in setting the story about Blackness in this in a place where we don't always talk about Blackness, right? Um, but I was also, I think, understanding this book as, as having two other kinds of questions um, one of which is about civility, right? Which isn't limited to the Midwest, but which is somehow sometimes amplified, like sometimes what we pretend to value or say that we value about 
um, the quote-unquote heartland, right, is this idea of neighborliness or civility, um, which often feels to me tied to that exclusion, right? The reason everybody can get along is because they there there isn't anyone there to say no, but like you have to pick a side because not picking a side means not defending me, right? Um, and so the more kind of quote unquote outsiders you have in a space, the more fraught that sort of idea of well we just won't talk about the things that cause conflict becomes because the conflict is sometimes over whether or not you're going to protect other people or make them feel welcome. So um, I am interested in that as like a national question, um, which I felt like the sort of question of Midwest nice plays into interestingly. And I'm also interested in, in one of the things that happens in that book is like, and not just in, in the Midwest, but also when she first meets him in college in the Northeast, um, there's an awareness this, narrator has that she's treated differently when she goes places with a white man, right? And I think a lot of these stories sort of play with the idea of passing in various ways. It comes implicitly and explicitly into the novella in various ways. Um, and I'm interested in that question, that question of kind of what happens when you understand what privileges proximity to whiteness confers? What happens when you understand that if you walk into a restaurant with a white man, you get different service than when you walk into a restaurant with a black man, right? And some people again, like characters have very different reactions to the same sort of circumstances in the book. Um, but I think she has this sort of profound ambivalence toward her relationship with Nick precisely because it makes things easier and, and that upsets her and makes her angry, but also makes things easier. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, um, I'm going to go with, I think... The novels that I read the most are Jazz and Mrs. Dalloway, which are actually really interesting to read in conversation. But I'm going to read a passage from, from Jazz. Um, this is, I, I tend to read the sort of longer version of this, but I'm just going to read um, a paragraph. Um, I think this is at the end of a section talking about the Great Migration and people coming um, from the South to the city, the city in this passage being New York City. Um, I think it's just sort of, it's beautiful in terms of prose and image and also theme. And it's, it's beautiful while not looking away from, from the ugly. And it does this sort of beautiful movement from, um, from beauty to ugliness and back. Um, so I'm just going to read it. This is Toni Morrison, Jazz. But I have seen the city do an unbelievable sky. Red caps and dining car attendants who wouldn't think of moving out of the city sometimes go on at length about country skies they have seen from the windows of trains. But there is nothing to beat what the city can make of a night sky. It can empty itself of surface and more like the ocean than the ocean itself go deep, starless. Close up on the tops of buildings near and nearer than the cap you are wearing. Such a city sky presses and retreats, presses and retreats, making me think of the free but illegal love of sweethearts before they are discovered. Looking at it, this night sky booming over a glittering city, it's possible for me to avoid dreaming of what I know is in the ocean and the bays and tributaries it feeds. The two-seat airplanes nose down in the muck, pilot and passenger staring at schools of passing bluefish, money soaked and salty in canvas bags, or waving their edges gently from metal bands made to hold them forever. They are down there, along with yellow flowers that eat water beetles and eggs floating away from thrashing fins, along with the children who made a mistake and the parents they chose, along with slabs of Carrara pried from, pried from unfashionable buildings. There are bottles, too, made of glass beautiful enough to rival stars I cannot see above me because the city sky has hidden them. 
Otherwise, if it wanted to, it could show me stars cut from the LeMay gowns of the chorus girls or mirrored in the eyes of sweethearts, furtive and happy under the pressure of a deep, touchable sky. Do you want to share anything else about why you chose that? It's just, it's one of the things I reread when I want to remember why I wanted to be a writer. I don't, I don't know that I have a more profound um, explanation. I just, I, I love this novel a lot and I think it manages to, to break all kinds of structural rules while doing what's most important, which is creating um, kind of beautifully rendered characters and, and asking this larger question about, about time and movement and history. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah, you know, the, the passage I'd originally chosen for this, I felt like it didn't work outside of the story because because maybe one of the hardest things to do in this collection was to get a kind of omission into the story of Boys Go to Jupiter, where I wanted to get on the page somehow the things that the per- point of view character wasn't looking at. And so I felt like they're cumulative and there wasn't like a passage I could read. So instead, I'm going to read one of the other kind of trickier things in the, in the book, which is um, this passage from Happily Ever After that wasn't in the first version of the story, at least wasn't in as great detail because I think it took me a while to, to be able to look again directly at that grief in a story that was partly about the character's evasion of, of feeling that grief. This is from page seven. There was something they wouldn't tell everybody and she wanted to be told, which meant she had to look like a real person to them, like a person whose mother deserved to live, like someone who loved somebody. Whatever information they weren't going to give her whatever medicine they didn't bother trying on black women she would have to ask to get would have to ask for directly so that in the file if they refused but ask for without seeming stupid or aggressive or cold she would have to be poised and polite through her frustration which thankfully retail had prepared her for tell me what you would tell a white woman her face said a white woman with money her clothes said please her tone said but eventually all the doctors told her the same thing unless accepted there was nothing left to ask for In the hospital at the end, she wore the same clothes for days and didn't bother combing her hair. A night janitor asked Lissa if she was the patient's granddaughter. At first, she was offended on her mother's behalf. Illness hadn't aged her that much. But when she saw herself in the mirror, she realized it was not how old her mother looked, but how young she looked in her unmade state, how creaturely and unable to fend for herself. In the hospital bed, her mother looked alive and vital, only sleeping. They often go as soon as you do, a nurse said three days after they'd taken her mother off food. Alyssa realized only much later that she had taken the wrong message, that the nurse hadn't meant Alyssa had to stay put or she might miss it. The same nurse pointed out on day five, when her mother's urine bag had gone from yellow to brown, tells her everything else would follow the kidneys and shut down soon. Do you want to say anything else about that? No, I think I think that was it. <laughs> Where do you write? Um, these days I write on my couch. Um, when I'm really in a project, I write in the middle of the night. And so usually I write at home and not in my bed because then I might fall asleep. Um, I used to, when I needed to write in the daytime or when I was not feeling that kind of rush of inspiration, I would I would go write in coffee shops. I'm in, I'm in Baltimore and some of my favorites are um, in my neighborhood, um, the coffee shop at Red Emma's, which is also a bookstore, but I kind of like it when there's like a separate floor so you can be in the coffee shop and not like the books aren't staring at you, judging you. Um, so it's a nice kind of coffee shop cafe. And then um, Ceremony Coffee, of course, this year has been uh, not a great time for going to write in coffee shops. So I have been I have been inside, which um, thankfully is a part of my routine. Um, I've actually become less of a night owl because I don't do things during the day anymore. So there's no reason to evade or avoid writing. Um, but I hope that 
eventually I will, I will go back to alternating between writing in my apartment in the middle of the night and writing in coffee shops. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I didn't know that was an option. <laughs> Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, at this point, usually my agent and editor. For a few of the stories in this collection, because I wasn't supposed to be working on a story collection, I showed them to um, friends first. Just to, to, I waited until I felt like they were virtually done because I didn't want to give my agent something that I wasn't supposed to be writing and also would need her to edit. Um, so I waited until I felt like you know the story could be sent out to an editor and it's in pretty good shape um, before passing it on. Um, but most of the time at this point, because because my work is under contract and because I do have good relationships with my agent and editor, I feel like I want them to see it relatively like earlier than I would show it to anybody else because I want um, I want their input before I kind of try to solve the problems I'm still thinking through. Um, so I think at this point, what I'm working on next, we'll, we'll go there first and we'll probably only go to friends if I have a specific question that I want someone's read on. How have you dealt with rejection? I wouldn't say that I deal well with rejection, but I think that I, I'm not bothered by rejection. I don't know. I mean, I think to, to reference a very serious literary movie, um, I remember that scene in the movie Clueless, right, where... Um, she says something about like Cher is, is saying to her father that this boy doesn't like her. And he says, well, if he doesn't like you, he's stupid. And we can't have you dating somebody who's stupid. Right. He's, it's, it's funnier than that in the movie. Um, but I think that I, I do think that like you want your work with the people who love it. You know, you want your work with the people who, who understand what you're doing. You also want your work with people who push it. And so I think there are two kinds of rejection. There's like the rejection of like, it's actually not ready yet. And you're going to be relieved for that rejection down the road because I wouldn't want like a, a messy version of a thing that I could have made better out in the world. Um, and you, it, it's easier to find a home for something that's actually good than to retract something that wasn't as good as it could have been. Um, and I think the other kind of rejection is like just a bad fit or a person who doesn't get what you're doing. Um, and like, I just don't lose that much sleep over that. You know, I mean, I think um, if that person doesn't get it, someone else will. And what is your favorite word? You know, for years it was problematic, and I think maybe now it's not that anymore. Maybe it's serendipity, which gives the impression that I'm becoming more optimistic as I age, which I'm absolutely not. But I am more grateful for those moments of serendipity, perhaps. Well, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate your time in this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for reading so carefully and talking to me. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Danielle Evans, author of The Office of Historical Corrections. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Emily Bernard, who wrote a series of essays collected in the book Black is the Body about her experiences of race in America. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. 
Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Kwame Alexander and Ben Ogri. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.